Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kimmy Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello to our listeners. We have a really great episode this week. We have one of our favorite things, a podcast mashup with the Governance Uncovered podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local um, Development Group. Um, and this is a conversation with Jeffrey Poller. And um, Kim, what's on your mind this week? Well, I mean, the biggest news this week is obviously Cyclone Freddie, which formed in the Mozambican Channel, but has brought severe devastation to Malawi. Um, so I've been thinking about all of my friends and colleagues who are there um, weathering the storm. Um, you know, we don't know the total damage yet from the cyclone, but in the um, in the latest updates that have been posted to Malawi's um, Department of Disaster Management Affairs, what, what's called DODMA. Um, DODMA has recently posted that more than 200 people have lost their lives. Tens of thousands of people have been displaced. Um, I've been seeing videos uh, via social media of homes just totally destroyed um, from the, the hurricane force winds that have, you know, just kind of lifted rooftops, you know, off, fully off of homes. Um, and, but also, it's not just the winds that have been destructive, it's the rains and the massive flooding that's happened um, in many areas. You know, um, people are referring to, to towns as lakes because they are so flooded. Um, and you know, people have lost their lives in the floodwaters. There's still people who are missing. And so um, the Malawi Defense Forces, right, the kind of military um, in, in Malawi is still conducting search and rescue operations. And, um, you know, also, you know, while the, the government, so I've already mentioned, right, the MDF and DODMA, while the government has has been doing its work and trying to respond to the cyclone, I want to point out too the role of communities and ordinary citizens who are engaging in mutual aid, you know, trying to get people to safety and also um, collect goods to redistribute to people who are in need. So I've been seeing a lot of posts, you know, for example, the Young Feminist Network, which is a you know a, an organization in Malawi. Um, you know, they had a call on their Instagram for people to donate, you know, clothes, but also um, menstrual hygiene products to, to give away what they're calling, you know, dignity kits to people who've been affected by the cyclone, because even when there's a cyclone, people still have their periods. So it's really important, you know, that we think about, um, you know, the kinds of things that people need. Um, Dodma did post on its Facebook page the kinds of um, mutual aid things that people can give if you live in uh, Malawi. I would say, though, that folks who live outside of Malawi and are thinking of, you know, what you can do to help um, in the short term, there are going to be significant needs for um, building materials for people to rebuild their homes, um, clothing, food. I mean, the, the worst part about this, right, is we're just a couple of months away from harvest season mm -hmm. and people's crops have been ruined by these, you know, flooding rains. And, um, and also there's other parts of the country that didn't get flooded that are actually going through a dry spell. So I'm, I'm really concerned about food security in this coming season. I I'm, I'm concerned about what the harvest is going to mean, um, given this really significant storm and, 
Um, while there's certainly these immediate issues about, you know, lives lost, people still missing, um, and, and people having lost their shelter and not being able to meet their basic needs because of how much the storm has taken from them. Um, I'm also worried about what this is going to mean for the coming year because people tend to harvest starting in May and June. And, you know, people have already, you know, spent, you know, significant labor and investment in planting their gardens so that they could harvest and and then have food to sustain them for the year. Because as I'm sure many of our listeners know, after all of these years of me talking about Malawi, so many of Malawi's farmers depend on rain-fed agriculture, not irrigation. And so when you have um, these drastic changes in weather patterns due to climate change, it makes it very difficult for subsistence farmers, depending on rain-fed agriculture, to actually have um, a significant crop that they can sustain off of for the whole year. And so I am concerned about food security in the coming year. Um, and so for those people in the U.S. who are wondering, you know, you know, what could I give? Um, I, I should say the U.S. and elsewhere in the world beyond Malawi don't send your clothes to Malawi. There's plenty of secondhand clothes already there. Um, you know, the best gift in these moments, as our colleague Laura C. has always said, you know, it's cash. Um, it's money. Cash is king. Yep. You know, because then people can support the local economy in buying the things that they need. And um, while there has been a significant devastation, there are still goods in the country that people can purchase. And so if there's a way to give cash, um, you know, and it's so interesting that this cyclone is happening at the same time that Nicholas Kerr and I are writing a paper about the previous most historic and devastating cyclone, Cyclone Idai, which hit Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe in 2019. And we're trying to understand, you know, what were the politics surrounding disaster response and how do voters react to disasters you know, in these um, in these countries that where cyclones and these kinds of severe weather events are going to become more severe and more frequent due to climate change. And so we're trying to. Un so so it's interesting because I was already reading so much about cyclones and disaster response. And I was going back to notes from, you know, even field notes I had taken in 2016, the last time there was significant food insecurity in Malawi, you know, interviews I had done with people who were working in food relief and how, like, I learned in 2016, right, seven years ago, food relief program, one of the, interview, one of the interviews I did, they weren't giving out food. They were giving out cash. And that was because they wanted people to be empowered to buy their own food and they wanted to contribute to the local economy, right? That was in 2016. So again, like, please don't send your used clothing. Don't, you know, like send cash, send it to reputable organizations. We will um, find a few that we can post on our website after this episode so that folks can have uh, trusted organizations to support that are working on the ground in Malawi and where your money will actually be going to people who were affected by Cyclone Freddy. Um, because to be frank, Malawi's government has had a serious record of corruption in, um, in, in the distribution of aid. And that's why, like, even again, in 2016, when I was talking, doing these interviews about, you know, food relief, 
who was running the program, not the not the Malawian government, it was the World Food Program. And that's because donors didn't trust that if they gave the money to the government, they would actually get to people in need. Um, now, of course, it's a different government in office now than in 2016 or in 2019 when Cyclone Freddie happened. And again, you know, I did more interviews, or I'm sorry, when Cyclone Die happened, and I did more interviews with people about How's the relief program going? They're like, yeah, this isn't being coordinated by government. Government, No, because the P- the international donors who have this money to provide relief don't trust that the money will be spent responsibly. Um, now, of course, I'm seeing, you know, lots of photographs of, you know, various um, businesses in Malawi handing over these kind of large checks to the to to DADMA, the Department of Disaster Management Affairs. Um, likewise, I've been seeing that, you know, people are giving these large checks to, um, you know, Oxfam Malawi, you know, different, um, charitable organizations or international non-governmental organizations that have offices in Malawi. Um, and to be honest, I'm, it's difficult for me. I mean, you, you, I'm sure as a political scientist, like as someone who cares deeply about the development of democracy in um young democracies Mm -hmm. i want there to be democratic accountability and i know you can't have that in international organizations so if i give my money to save the children malawi i might know that there would be less corruption right but there's no accountability for save the children malawi right like there's no voting the bums out because the international ngos don't get elected or, you know, thrown out of office, right? It's only governments that are elected and get thrown out of office. So it's, you know, it's it's difficult. I recognize it's difficult in these moments. You want government to respond and you mm-hmm. want government to be effective and you want government to be held accountable when they're not. Um, but if you know the 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 previous record suggests right, that there's going to be a siphoning off of this relief funding, and it's not going to get to the people who really need it the most, it's very difficult to then decide, okay, what do I do? Um, And so folks who are kind of troubling with that right now and not sure where to give and how to do it and what's ethical, what's right and what's good for Malawians, um, I guess I'm just here to say, like, that's a good conversation to be having with yourself, and there's no good answer yet. I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm ready to be wrong on that. I'd love to have a listener, you know, call in, send us a voice note telling me why I'm wrong and, and, and who people should be giving to and why. Um, but, um, I I should also say that on Thursday, um, March 16th, Malawian president Lazarus Chakwera declared 14 days of national mourning to honor the more than 200 lives lost to Cyclone Freddie in Malawi. And I should also say that Cyclone Freddie hasn't only affected Malawi, right? Um, but it has been really devastating in Malawi, but it's also affected people in Mozambique as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the coming weeks, we're going to learn more about just how many people were affected. A lot of the reporting I've been reading is out of Blantyre, which is Malawi's second largest city. It's the commercial capital um, and it's where there are reporters. But there's mm-hmm. also, I've seen video of severe flooding in Mulanje and Cholo districts. And I think it's only going to be in the weeks to come that we learn of the true impact of the storm because we'll have a greater sense of, you know, how many people were lost and how how much damage there is across mm-hmm. um, the affected regions. 
You know, Kim, I think it's so, it's a theme that we continue to return to because of events and the events are extreme weather events. And so it's so key that you raise this both in terms of areas affected by drought, areas affected by, uh, by flooding. And when we look at the differentiated impact across rural to urban areas and the ways in which systems and structures in place of production and, and you know, social cooperation and political programs are also differentiated across those spaces, whether they're agricultural or whether they're, um, you know, capital cities. And, um, and I think, you know, that's something that actually, you know, we really take up in this week's episode in our podcast mashup. So I just want to turn to that because it's so linked to, to this topic. Yeah. I mean, so I'm really excited. So I have for our listeners, I have not listened to this panel that um, Rachel and and Jeff Peller convened. um, But I really, I'm really excited to know more because, you know, one of the questions I keep getting from journalists about this cyclone is, oh, could there have been like sustainable smart cities um, that, you know, you know, kind of talking about like urban development, could that have helped this? And I'm like, no, no, like, like maybe that will help when there's like regular rains, but bruh, this was like a serious, like category four cyclone. Like this is like, you could have the smartest Nordic building that, you know, is like totally made for disasters. Like you could be a rich country and, you know, cause I live in a supposedly rich country Mm -hmm. And I've seen what hurricanes can do to, you know, buildings that were built to code to people who live in cities. Yeah. They're still damaging. Absolutely. Um, but having said that, now this is this is a very extreme cyclone. And maybe on the margins, right, you know, smart urban development, maybe not just like, you know, what kind of smart buildings could people live in, but drainage systems, right? If we think about government and what government is supposed to do, it's not just supposed to help individuals, it's supposed to help the collective. And if we think about that, right, these broader systems of, you know, and I keep thinking, well, now he's got this cholera epidemic going on. You know what you don't need during a cholera epidemic? Flooding, Mm -hmm. right? Because all that's going to do, right? Cholera is waterborne. It spreads by water. So, you know, I'm, I'm also concerned about like, what are the implications for the eradication of cholera, which Malawi has struggled Mm -hmm. to get rid of um, these last couple of months. And so I, you know, I want to hear what Jeff Fowler has to say, you know, about, you know, how do we think about the changes in climate and what we need to do to keep people safe. Absolutely. Exactly right. And actually our panelists had a lively debate and, you know, real, you know, we really dug into smart cities and the role of, you know, tech and infrastructure. So let me just um, open with saying that this is a, a really wonderful podcast mashup with Governance Uncovered, which is run out of the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. And the episode was really inspired by Jeffrey Pollard's This Week in Africa post, which was five trends that will shape urban Africa in 2023. So let me lay out here for our listeners what those um, five trends are. And one is innovative forms of affordable housing. Another is gentrifying neighborhoods. 
Third is heightened focus on emerging cities, right? Cities that are coming out of what used to be categorized as rural places and become because they're growing so quickly, they become cities, right? And fourth is confronting flooding. Here we, you know, we're really um, key on this. And the fifth is impact of big tech, right? So that combination of how do we identify trends one through four with tech and innovation, and or politics and social cooperation, right? So not thinking them of, of them as substitutes, but how they go together and not relying overly on technological solutions without taking account of the social, um, behavioral, and political context that shape how tech is used and for whom, right? So it's a really great conversation. And to answer these questions or to reflect on these five trends, we are joined by three expert panelists. And one is Ugandan-based economist and expert of all things urban, Astrid Haas, who has written extensively on African urbanization, informality, housing, municipal finance, and public transport. Also with us in the panel is environmental anthropologist and senior researcher at the Nordic Africa Institute, Patience Masusa, who's author of the recently published books, There Used to Be Order, Life on the Copper Belt After Privatization of the Zambian Consolidated Copper Mines, and a second book, The Practice and Politics of DIY Urbanism in African Cities. So really, really fantastic work. And finally, our third panelist in this conversation is Prince Guma, an expert on urban infrastructure, City Making and Smart Urbanism, who's currently a postdoctoral research associate at Sheffield University's Urban Institute. So we have the right people around the table. These are all experts with really specific knowledge, but also awareness of these broad patterns. Um, and so we hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Ufahamu Africa and a podcast mashup with Governance Uncovered here with myself, Rachel Beatty-Riedel, and Governance Uncovered uh, co-host Jeffrey Poller. We're ex especially excited to have this episode because we have gathered together a set of experts on urbanization and building from Jeffrey Poller's This Week in Africa recent post, Five Trends That Will Shape Urban Africa in 2023. We're going to dive into a conversation around these themes of and conversation around governance, urbanization, informality, uh, housing, finance, etc., that help us to understand these broader demographic, social, political trends um, that are shaping the continent. We have three esteemed guests with us here today, Prince Nguma. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Astrid Haas. Uh, thanks, Rachel. I look forward to the discussion. And Patience Masusa. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. Thanks so much to each of these experts for joining us. And I'm going to hand it over to Jeffrey for our first question. Yes, uh, thank you. Astrid, you have written extensively on the housing shortage facing African cities, as well as the opportunity it provides for African governments and businesses. You are a leading voice among economists and policymakers who take informality seriously. The first trend that I outline is that governments will search for innovative forms of affordable housing. Governments realize that this is important to take care of their populations as well as a really important political issue. How can African cities build more affordable housing for its residents? 
And as you recently wrote about, how can we do informal housing better? Um, thanks, Jeffrey. Um, I think part of the issue is the, the, the word innovative. Um, governments like to look outside the box. They like to not uh, deal with the challenges that are actually within their own systems. And I think particularly when it comes to housing, one of the major challenges is inappropriate regulations, inappropriate building like regulations, inappropriate standards that just don't match um, what the cities need. Uh, in part, these are still inherited from colonial times. Um, and in part, it's because they try and imagine a city that our cities are not. Um, so, you know, having structures that or providing standards for structures that just cannot be built. The second thing I would say is, and, and this goes to your point about doing informal housing better, is that governments don't necessarily need to do it all themselves, nor can they do it all themselves. But there is actually a booming um, micro private sector who granted are not providing quality housing, uh, because that's a lot in the informal settlements, but they do understand what the demand is for this housing, and they are building quickly, and they are building at scale. So how can we incentivize them to do that better at a higher quality without governments having to take on the full weight of this challenge themselves? And Astrid, do you, can you give us a sense of how big this challenge really is? I think it's not only the challenge today, Jeffrey. I think it's the fact that we are we are behind the curve already and urbanizing at an extreme um, speed, which means that already being behind the curve means that we're already going to um, not be able to catch up in the near future. Um, I think you just have to go to, to most African cities, if not all, and see how quickly informal settlements are proliferating to know that we are missing affordable quality housing. Uh, some recent data from the United Nations suggests that more than 50% of the African urban population live in uh, slum-like conditions. Uh, another interesting statistic is that more, more than 60% of the urban population are youth. So we have a lot of young people who are living in uh, this type of environment. Now, Patience, you've written a lot about how residents cannot wait for their governments to fix their cities. And I think Astrid just make the, made this point as well. You suggest that residents are actually doing things on their own. You call this DIY urbanism. Can you tell us what this is and how you see it playing a role in the search for more affordable housing? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, just to kind of, uh, you know, step off from Astrid, I mean, people are in a hurry to provide themselves uh, housing. Uh, other than in many, in some African countries, uh, I mean, some housing was being provided by the state in the kind of immediate post-independence period, but uh, protracted economic crisis in many places and also kind of structural adjustment policies, effectively austerity policies, effectively means that uh, the states are quite, you know, in quite tight financial situations to do that. So this do-it-yourself, and we're calling it kind of do it yourself as an analytical frame to look at what people are actually doing uh, includes both kind of as a form of auto construction that includes effectively kind of creating makeshift infrastructure such as housing roads um, uh, drainages and you know retrofitting kind of energy systems or hijacking 
it, but it also is connected to how people are organizing services uh, within the city. So one could see it almost a kind of a, a kind of placemaking um, a way in which people are actually making places, they're making infrastructure, but they're also creating urban services. And in that process, also creating new governance systems in the absence of, um, of state capacity. Excellent. Uh, Prince, let's turn to you. Uh, a second trend facing African cities is the role of big tech. Twitter has arrived in Ghana. Google continues to invest across the continent and tech hubs are sprouting up in many African cities. How do you see technology shaping the development of African cities? Yes, I think one uh, of the impacts that can be realized right now uh, is that we are already observing uh, in many uh, African countries, um, a rise of a kind of state-led uh, smart city uh, projects uh, that I imagine right now. And these projects are often, you know, unless they often tend to be uh, modeled along, you know, a kind of the Silicon Valley's um, ubiquity of, you know, a kind of transferable policy, uh, as well as um, I think with these kinds of policies also a rise of new investment uh, landscapes. Uh, that are emerging in many uh, African countries. Uh, and these are often, at least they often tend to be hubs of innovation, uh, smart city style quarters. Um, and these in a way, at least try to replicate or at least to promote uh, external representations of uh, smartness, a kind of smartness that is, you know, sort of reflected in uh, a lot of the cities in the uh, uh, global north. Uh, and so they echo a particular set of rationalities uh, that are premised upon uh, the ubiquitous role and logics of uh, digital technological solutions uh, in shaping urban futures, Africa's urban futures. Um, and they also transpire uh, in a form of large scale top-down projects um, shaped by internationally circulating ideas and ideals and models of what a smart city is or what it should look like. Um, but they're also prom prominently rooted within um, different countries, uh, you know, you know, um, capitals and government offices. Uh, and so they're mostly driven by, um, you know, international developers, uh, you know, a spread of uh, global consultants, uh, you know, like McKinsey and others. Um, and they are financed by, you know, very hegemonic institutions, but also really shaped by these very hegemonic ideals uh, of what a world-class city, world-class smart city really is or what it should look like. And so the big tech fit well within this wider um, sort of like hyper-modern and hyper-network experiments and other techniques. Um, and so they tend to be really, um, I think the idea of what a smart city is, is very speculative in nature. It's very future um, oriented, uh, but it is, it is also very outward looking. So it very rarely, um, you know, fits the narrative of the, you know, actual realities of the African cities. Uh, and so one of the stark, uh, you know, um, realities when you, you know, just go into any African city like Nairobi or Kampala or um, Lagos, uh, a lot of what you tend to actually find on the ground, a kind of ubiquitous, you know, text-based money transfer banking, you know, systems and services uh, where people, you know, 
at least transact their daily operations through the mobile phone. Um, they also kind of targeted e-payment technologies, uh, digital media and app-based platforms, incremental metering projects, and hybrid ICT-based infrastructure and housing projects, as well as small and medium uh, scale farms and startups. Um, and so you can really very clearly see a very distinct um, you know, difference in terms of what ideas are uh, you know, thrown out in terms of what a smart city should be um, versus what is actually happening on the ground. And that's so fascinating. And I, you know, when I think about big tech and what you've just said, I often see this tension between, you know, capacity, right, to map and to uh, bring new innovative solutions. And yet we also see the potential of what I think back to in, in James Scott's iconic work in terms mm -hmm. of like a surveillance state or the ability of the government and the state bureaucracy to know Deep, more deeply, you know, the contours of people's social, political, and economic lives. And so I think that this is, you know, tech has so many aspects to it when we think about urban spaces in particular. Um, and there, there, there's the, the kind of pro-social, pro-governance, and then there might be the flip side of that coin as well. So just wanted to open this up to Astrid and Patience to think about how you see the role of big tech and urbanism uh, today. Um, maybe uh, if, if you'll allow me, I'll go first because I feel very strongly about this question and about the, the issue of smart cities. And and the reason is um, I there's, there's three major challenges I see with it. One, it's again, you know, similar to my answer on housing, it's governments trying to just sort of leapfrog and not deal with the challenges they have in the assumption that they can just build something new and somewhere else. However, the second issue is it's very expensive. And that speaks partly to what uh, Prince was talking about is that it's a very nebulous term. And so, you know, I've seen anything be sold under the, the concept of a smart city and everyone wants to be a smart city now. And so they spend their, their money on this. And the third thing is, it, in, in, and I don't know of any case where this is not the case, so correct me if I'm wrong, but they drive inequality because they are not made for the poor. So they are not building that uh, large amount of affordable housing that we need and everything else. So I want to just say, you know, Africa is urbanizing in a resource constrained environment. We know that, right? However, we also have the opportunity that we do have a lot of data, which is where big tech plays a, a role because we see where our new cities are going to be. We know where people are moving. We can predict this, we can model this. And actually what we should be doing is taking these scarce resources and trying to get ahead of the curve and investing in these new spaces rather than trying to recreate, um, uh, you know, or, or create spaces that are driving inequality. And also, you know, we haven't really figured out what makes cities tick because cities is not just about the infrastructure. They're very, nuanced parts about social networks, you know, cultural networks, and no government is going to recreate that from the start. So it's a very risky gamble. It's a very expensive risky gamble. And it takes away from the sort of actual areas where we know people are moving and making those investments. Um, yeah, if I'm so yeah, if I can kind of step in, actually, it's a very interesting debate because there's kind of almost kind of two, there's kind of two tensions that occur. One is the idea that kind of Africa's and African kind of planners can kind of imagine a future that's kind of that uh, if 
they can materialize it much quicker than anybody else. And then on the other hand, there's also this need to kind of know the city. So for some planners kind of working within this field, it's uh, how can tech and technology provide them a database to actually know what is going on in the city, who is who, and how are people kind of working? And so I kind of remember one discussion uh, back in Zambia, and it was this question about addressing. How do you know where people live when you have a reasonable degree of um, mobility? How do you know where to send particular you know, the tax bill or, you know, the electricity bill or all these kind of like government services, uh, if you do not have a proper physical address due to some of the kind of planning challenges that you, you know, you don't have a proper postal service anymore. And so then the mobile phone becomes, you know, to some extent, a kind of addressing system but also a way in which to kind of collect uh, data. I think one of the big challenges too, you know, kind of adding into this kind of complexity is then what is what is done with this data? Who is having access to it? Uh, and to what extent do, you know, kind of urban citizens have a say in directing um, kind of how this data is used? But also where resources, you know, are invested. You know, can both of you mention that it's really, really very expensive? So what what say do people actually have? Or are they just being kind of mined for kind of interesting data so that they can kind of figure out a way to track people, to get them to pay an electricity bill and kind of make money out of them? Patients, I agree with you. And that's especially in the context of increasingly, in some in some places, increasingly authoritarian states, right? Um where where that could not only be used to track someone for their electricity bill, but for, for other purposes as well. This is really fascinating. And I wanna turn it back to you, Prince, because you wrote a book called Rethinking Smart Urbanism. And I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us what you mean by that and perhaps provide some insights into how cities actually can use this uh, technology in a smart way. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, and thanks for the kind words about the book. Um, yeah, but I think this fits well into, uh, you know, um, the arguments uh, that um, Astrid and Precious are also trying to make about the, um, you know, the complexities around the smart city. Um, and for me, uh, in the book, I try, I'm trying to um, um, understand or at least examine the multiple ways uh, through which cities and infrastructures are constructed and reconstructed through ICT innovation and appropriation um, and how digital infrastructures uh, facilitate um, utility companies and different kinds of organizations ambition, ambitions uh, of extending uh, centralized networks or infrastructure uh, in at least in the case of uh, utility companies, to new territories, which often tend to be informal settlements, slums, and so on. Um, and so by so doing, shaping different kinds of uh, city-making processes. Um, and uh, part of my interest in the book is trying to understand the best-based articulations of smart city-making uh, and urban futuring. Um, and so with the concept of smart urbanism, uh, for me, it was very important to try and um, understand 
um, I mean, it's a broad a broader field within urban studies uh, that deals with, uh, uh, at least it implies a particular set of rationalities that embody the ubiquitous role of new technologies. Uh, and it, it, this includes uh, smart devices, uh, internet of things, uh, and big data approaches to deliver sustainable, uh, prosperous and inclusive urban futures. And for me, it was very great uh, analytical approach for uh, examining uh, contemporary developments of uh, digital uh, of the digital age, uh, in terms of how the digital age offers innovative solutions uh, to uh, urban developments, uh, service delivery, and governance challenges. Uh, but of course, uh, like Astrid and uh, patients mentioned, uh, the concept itself, or at least the analytical framework, has its own limitations. And part of the critique uh, of the concept has been. Uh, that it tends to be, you know, quite uh, deterministic, um, in a way, you know, hegemonizing, hegemonizing uh, urban worlds and cities, uh, where um, when we talk about what a smart city is or what a smart city should look like, we often tend to have an idea of what this should be. And yet, uh, as I've mentioned in the case of many African cities, um, the reality often tends to be uh, quite different. I think what uh, this conversation brings us to is this question of who is the city for? Um, and what we're noticing is the rise, a lot of these cities are becoming more and more unequal. Um, which brings me to a trend that I discussed in the post, which is the rise of gentrifying neighborhoods. So neighborhoods in cities like Johannesburg, Dakar, Nairobi, Lagos, even uh, Kampala face rising housing costs leading to the displacement of many current residents. African cities uh, are at the forefront of some very exciting uh, global movements, uh, global food, fashion, music trends, um, but much of the effects are felt in the very urban neighborhoods where these creative forces are taking place. And I think this tension is something that many of these larger African cities um, are facing. Um, Astrid, do you see gentrification as a serious challenge to African cities? Um, and if so, what can governments do to deal with the rising uh, housing costs and this increasing inequality? So I think, you know, speaking from my own experience here, uh, having now lived in Kampala for more than a decade um, and being from Kampala, you know, in some ways it's very exciting. I think it shows what uh, African cities can do, what African cities have to offer, and that like many successful cities around the world, they drive, you know, innovation because they bring together people from, from different backgrounds. And so that's where you see the trends, um, you know, the fashion, the music that you mentioned, Jeffrey. Um, I think the challenge is, is that um, the focus right now um, is very much on that consumer or that what they call the growing middle class and the growing consumer class um, because it paints a, a very rosy picture. Uh, and again, it's easier to, to, to put that picture out and to, to sort of cater for that uh, echelon uh, rather than deal with the majority. Um, I think we need to make sure that we, you know, look very closely, for example, to the Latin America urbanization experience that drove inequality very high and try and avoid that. However, for that to happen, I think um, the rhetoric around how we deal with inequality. So right now, the informal is uh, 
somehow equated with 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 the, everything that's bad about the city, even though it's the majority of the economic activity, it's the majority of the transport system, and it's the majority of the housing system. So to get to your point about gentrification, you know, it's it's a problem in a place where we're not on the other side working on trying to 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 create enough affordable housing because it's what drives inequality, but it's not a problem in and of itself if we could be managing the city better. And to do that, we cannot uh, just focus on that one part and ignore the other. Prince, do you notice that uh, many of these new infrastructure developments that are coming with increased, um, uh, th that are uh, coming with increased de development of these cities and new infrastructure projects, do you see this leading to massive displacements of people uh, in the cities that you work? Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, and um, I think one thing that is highly synonymous with a lot of uh, uh, city plans in many African uh, cities um, is that uh, this, uh, the, the policy and planning uh, tends to be um, less designed around, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, neoliberal, um, you know, at least around the uh, aspect of neoliberal institutions. And so they continue to design aggressive countermeasures uh, that impose uh, a kind of order uh, by eliminating those that they perceive to be obstructive obstacles to this idea of development. Um, and so um, a lot of the informal settlements, uh, informal constructions, um, you know, you can talk about kiosks and, you know, these other different kinds of installations like stalls and shacks and shanties. Um, they often tend to be perceived as being obstructive, to the, you know, obstructive obstacles uh, to the idea of urbanization and modernity. Um, and so municipal planning and engineering departments often tend to consider these um, constructions and even informal areas as not fitting uh, within cities. Uh, and so they're, you know, expressly uh, often ex excluded, uh, offstaged. Uh, and even sometimes, uh, you know, outlawed as settlements that don't belong within cities. And so uh, one trend uh, that is, you know, that often tends to follow these um, infrastructural development projects uh, is, you know, an aspect of slum clearance and demolition uh, where, um, you know, this actually tends to constitute a kind of repertoire of politics as Klub has, you know, uh, uh, has argued. Uh, and in this case, uh, there is often a tendency of using bulldozers as um, a central planning policy tool. Um, and so with, you know, these kinds of processes then increasingly, um, you know, he heightening the uh, aspect of uh, inequality. Um, and so I think the problem really becomes highly, um, distinct when one considers the kinds of plans uh, that are associated with uh, um, the current urban development in many African cities and how they approach, uh, how, how they view these informal settlements and informal constructions within cities. Patience, I wanted to ask you how much you think this deepening inequality is a new phenomenon or is it something that is rooted in history? Another way to think about this is how important is kind of history in this story? 
Um, yeah, and I mean, that's a good question because it's, it's key. I mean, kind of uh, both Astrid and Prince kind of mentioned, you know, uh, Prince mentioned particular policies of uh, slum clearance based on these kind of plans, you know, and kind of, uh, you know, and, 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 and the sort of colonial planning history, and Astrid mentioned kind of these building regulations um, earlier that kind of end up shaping how kind of cities uh, form. And it's quite interesting that actually, when you look at the kind of granular aspects of how people also kind of try to come out of the kind of straight jackets that they've been kind of placed in, um, they are adopting some of those kind of historically formed planning regimes that might have kind of kept them in equal and kind of responding to them by they're planning themselves uh, and creating the roadways and the kind of various infrastructure to try and avoid their neighborhoods from being raised or you know being raised to the ground uh but also kind of like a separate trend that's uh that's um uh, that's kind of core to this is kind of very much looking at the kind of political economy of uh, cities, you know, like sitting here in Sweden, for example, right, where you have a state very present in um, and a kind of municipal level governance and kind of raising resources from a tax base and even the kind of inequalities are, you know, are present everywhere. The the whole idea of the provision of public services, you know, so in thinking about some of these kind of structured inequalities, things like access to good schools, healthcare, are they being invested in these particular uh, neighborhoods and kind of and 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 settlements to effectively allow some level of social mobility? Uh, but as um, Astrid mentioned, I think we've shifted the political economy of African states, you know, has moved, I would say, in quite a number of cities to this kind of more spectacular consumption. I show that I'm doing okay. But even though the structural conditions actually on the basis are not necessarily okay, and then people are kind of improvising and sort of trying to make do, find a health center, find education, set up a small little classroom in somebody's home to try and fill in these um, uh, in these gaps. And I think that is effectively partly to do with the retreat of the state, that in an African context, you know, the, the implementation of their structural adjustment policies was extremely harsh. I don't think anywhere in the world they would have been implemented to that level of severity. Um, and that, I think, kind of informs some of the processes that have um, uh, urban processes that we see today. Great. Um, I think it's important to note that most of the urban growth is actually happening in smaller cities, uh, those with less than 1 million people. Uh, cities Alliance estimates that there are 885 secondary or intermediate cities of uh, this size, and this is where uh, over 40% of the urban growth is actually occurring. Um, so these cities are closer to urban populations and provide important markets for agriculture and other goods. Some of them are boom towns or regional capitals. Others are college towns and satellite cities. Um, we highlight the focus on emerging cities uh, as our fourth trend. Um, and I wanna ask you patients, uh, you've written extensively about these cities in the Copper Belt uh, in Southern Africa. What is notable about how smaller cities can approach devel development? And what have you learned from the experience in the Zambian Copper Belt that might be applicable elsewhere. 
I mean, what is it? I mean, the Zambian Copper Belt town were established around mining industries, kind of extractive locales. So then you've got settlements occurring uh, around there. And uh, and when you have these kinds of trends, you have kind of boom and bust, you know, so when the economy is OK and then when it's bad and kind of workers uh, get you know laid off and then they kind of have to figure out kind of new modes of livelihoods and how to kind of cope uh, with life. And I think what's really interesting, uh, at least, you know, kind of if, if planners, uh, you know, kind of state municipal planners would take up, is that when when people go off in these small areas, in small towns and are making either kind of agricultural livelihoods, um, uh, trade or working kind of or new kind of makeshift kind of, you know, where there's brick building and a whole range of other things. There's really not much invested investment being put in these areas. So there's no kind of, uh, you know, earlier Astrid mentioned this kind of micro interventions. There's no investment in kind of small irrigation systems, even that would kind of allow an upscaling of economy and support to these uh, to these areas, so they're they're increasingly central to how actually I would say kind of African countries work in terms of also where the urbanization dynamics are occurring, but they're kind of neglected in terms of the potential investments that might be directed to them, and in particular being attentive to what people are actually doing and how one might then be able to support that as a scaffolding for the different kinds of cities that actually take into account, you know, what African lives are like and how African economies are being uh, formed um, with that, because they don't have some of them, you know, bar the kind of older towns that are being regenerated, but the new ones do not necessarily carry that colonial baggage. Astrid, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I just was reflecting, um, it's very interesting because patients, you know, talked about cities being established in the 80s as being secondary cities. Um, Uganda is pretty much the opposite case. Up until July 2020, we had one city and then overnight we created 10 more and now we have 11 cities. Um, and um, what, what's interesting about that is that it reflects sort of a waking up that Africa is sort of no longer a rural continent, which is great because it means national policy is starting to take cities seriously. Uh, the challenge is it, it, it also reflects a little bit this this tension and this this misunderstanding about what a city is and that one can sort of wake up and, and declare a city. I think just to to build a little bit on on on, on patience's point, I think the lack of investment is 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 again is 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 a key challenge because the lack of investment also comes from the lack of money because the the economies of these cities, as as Jeffrey you mentioned, you know, very much based on on agriculture and agricultural goods, um, and and so even though the investments should be done before people settle, um, and in other in other uh, countries and secondary cities are as uh, you know growing extensively, and we know people are going to settle there. There's no money right now to make those investments. And unfortunately, you know, particularly you know political cycles mean that you're not going to invest for people who may vote you. 10 years or 15 years from now, you're going to invest in things that are going to bring you the votes today. And that's often in primary 
urban areas or alternatively rural areas, but not very much the secondary cities. So we still need to figure out how we start having sort of longer term thinking. And this is not just an African challenge. I think politicians across the world have this challenge. But the, the differences on the African urbanization is the speed and the scale that we're urbanizing at is that we don't have a lot of window of opportunity to get this right. So we need to, to figure this out pretty, pretty quickly. That's so, so important to think about the political logics that you bring in, Astrid, because, of course, um, as, you know, Jeffrey's work has showed and, you know, some of my recent work with Amanda Robinson in terms of thinking about the ways in which even citizens who are in these secondary cities or primary cities, uh, the extent to which their political logics are rooted in potentially, you know, the urban space and, you know, governing the urban urban space and or potentially they're also drawn back, you know, to um, rural constituencies and the ways in which, you know, MPs want people to be voting back in, in the rural sometimes. And so how those things contribute to the politics of the urban, right, starting from the ability to mobilize voters around different um, priority areas and what what short term strategies politicians have. To, to cultivate those voters. But I wanted to jump to the fifth trend, which is about climate change and the ways in which African cities are confronting uh, and combating climate change from top-down urban strategies and from bottom-up uh, strategies. We know that flooding is a major phenomenon across the world, uh, and certainly, and you know, in in major cities uh, across the continent, um, and floods are are a leading cause of of displacement. Um, some in some cases, death. So, how do we see cities? combating climate change? How do we see people kind of living in dense settings? How does that contribute to the potential to combat climate change? Or how are they impacted by climate change? How are they adapting their strategies of urban life in the face of, of climate change? Let me just open that up um, first to Prince, and then we'll, we'll move around um, the panel. Yes, I thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, uh, this is a very important issue. Um, and I think at the governance level, uh, I mean, there has been, um, I think a lot of the work has been more incremental in terms of, you know, a wide range of uh, different kinds of infrastructural uh, improvements uh, and, um, and change, um, such as, you know, where, uh, uh, some examples of you know where drainage systems are being um, you know installed or renovated, um, where storm sewers you know to increase the capacity of you know for water flow and so on are being installed. Uh, but a lot of the work I think has been more within the aspect of uh, physical infrastructure and policies, but also at the level of community engagement. Uh, where you know the development of uh, floodplain you know maps and zoning regulations are being uh, put in place, um, and in other cases, of course, where different kinds of digital technologies and entities have been used to provide more uh, sustainable uh, and you know more practical uh, solutions. Uh, but I think a lot of uh, the uh, infrastructural solutions that have been uh, put in place in many African cities has been more in uh, terms of renewable energy infrastructure 
um, uh, energy storage infrastructure, as well as you know electric vehicles in Uganda, for instance, uh, there are you know some uh, government initiatives to sort of like develop uh, electric vehicles and um, um, motorcycles as well. Um, and with a lot of the uh, smart city uh, kinds of plans, uh, a lot of the drive behind uh, these plans is uh, the urge to develop uh, green, you know, buildings and sustainable uh, infrastructure uh, kinds of solutions, uh, as well as a, a resilience infrastructure. Uh, but for me, what has been very striking uh, in terms of, uh, you know, approaches to climate change uh, has been in particular the role of uh, young people, the young folks, the youth, uh, who have been engaging in different um, ways, you know, uh, constituting different forms of organization, uh, often, you know, sometimes even street level kinds of organization, offering models of social participation uh, that go beyond idealized forms of, you know, collective action. Uh, so um, there are many examples where, uh, for instance, um, young folks organizing in schools, uh, in social gatherings, um, in order to create awareness of climate change and, you know, advocate for planning, uh, planting of more trees and protesting against plastic trash, polythene bags and, and emissions. Um, and what is really interesting about these kinds of um, engagements is how uh, these young folks really, you know, uh, use uh, these, you know, sort of like very everyday social media platforms like, you know, Twitter and Facebook, uh, but with really, really significant impact. Um, and I think there is so much to learn from how young folks are responding to, you know, this issue of climate change, and especially in terms of how we design, how, how our policies are designed uh, from the top down, um, but also how these other hegemonic institutions are sort of approaching the, as the issue of climate change. I think there is so much potential in what the young folks are doing, and there's so much that could actually be learned in terms of how to sort of approach climate change in the way that it actually um, addresses the problem, in the way that it addresses the problem, but also uh, realizes, you know, a kind of social justice where everybody uh, actually benefits from the kind of uh, policies that are put in place. And Astrid, how do you see it? It's a fascinating question because like I literally came from having worked in one of Uganda's new uh, new secondary cities, actually addressing this question with uh, city officials. And, um, you know, I think the, the interesting part is, I think in this in these parts of the world, people understand climate change more than anywhere else because it is actually affecting them on the day-to-day -day basis. They see the impacts, they see the increased heat, they see the different rainfall patterns and everything else. However, when it comes to sort of the agenda setting in the urban, and this is what, you know, this is the discussion we were having, it's not, for them, they don't see it as the most pressing issue because they have so many other needs, particularly, you know, just meeting the day-to-day -day livelihood needs of, of everyone else, uh, of everyone living in the city. And, you know, even trying to incorporate sort of adaptation into that discussion is, is, is difficult because, they 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 are adapting already. They have to because they see the sort of differences in rainfall patterns. They don't see that as as something that they they need to necessarily focus on. And it comes back to that same question: is that you know what are we planning for? And I think particularly in secondary cities, 
um, that are new and that have perhaps uh, even poorer populations than in some other cities. The immediate is often takes uh, precedence over the sort of longer term and climate change, uh, you know, we we can we can uh, argue here or there, but I think in 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 a lot of their thinking, climate change is in the medium to longer term rather than sort of competing. So I think it's how we get that that narrative to also reflect that it's actually in many cases what they're already doing, and it can be done without ex so much extra cost. But it can and it will create savings not only in terms of financial costs but in terms of um, social. Um, social costs like displacement and, and everything else into the future. So I think, you know, those are the conversations that we need to be, be having more. And we need to be doing a lot more of the listening as well, um, rather than the preaching, because I feel particularly on the climate agenda, it's become a very um, sort of preachy topic or, or the way it's perceived is that, you know, the West is preaching to us, yet the West created the problem. So who are they to tell us what we're supposed to do? So I think we just we, we need to shift that conversation a little bit more and, and be a bit more inclusive on that. Yeah, absolutely. On all points, you know, right, completely. And patience. Uh, yeah, I agree with I agree with kind of both of you. And I think the challenge is, I mean, there's kind of. For some of the the big infrastructure developments that we do see uh, on the continents in cities like highways and and that sort of thing, like roads, I think, which are usually actually also kind of largely donor driven. Um, I think there's also kind of lack of voice or agency from the perspective of um, African urban city uh, planners in terms of retrofitting that such that it is adapt, you know, it is suitable for the kind of challenges. So you do get this kind of new roads without kind of proper drainage. And um, there's a certain amount of kind of financing that is kind of placed there, but it's not really responsive effectively to, uh, to the challenges that we face now and in the future. And so then you have that side, the kind of like big infrastructure that, you know, kind of inter highways interlinking, usually going to a mine or something like that, that could be planned better and in a much more kind of responsive way. And there's not much going on there. And I think a lot more should be done there. And then there's the kind of for the everyday uh, people who are actually, you know, kind of for people kind of growing, relying on kind of urban agriculture for a livelihood. They're kind of very, very aware of this. Um, they're very well aware from a practical perspective around kind of issues of kind of sanitation and access to water. If you're relying on kind of shallow wells and the kind of variability around that. So it becomes part of a kind of everyday challenge. And I think the key the, the key challenge, I think, within these very, very constrained uh, settings is that what then can residents themselves do and what can the state do and what can the municipality do? And there's some kind of scope for kind of grassroots driven effort, but to scale them up such that they do have some impact. Some of it is kind of financial you know, kind of needing some resources. But a lot of it actually is about coordination in terms of uh, how you, uh, you know, kind of climate proof particular kinds of landscapes for people who have been forced to build on uh, vulnerable land because 
um, the, the contacts as land anywhere else. So if you say that, okay, this is what what people are practically doing within cities, then how do you coordinate those efforts to effectively make these particular landscapes you know, less disaster prone? And I think we need to start taking a much more pragmatic perspective to that and and maybe coordinating a little bit um, a little bit more. I, these are all great insights, and I think they bring us to our last question, which is, what do you think is the promise of urban Africa for the future? And what should policymakers keep in mind to help citizens and municipalities realize that promise? Just, uh, you know, stepping off from what um, Astrid and Fashions have highlighted, you know, in their, uh, you know, different reflections, I think there's so much to work with already. Um, and I think for me, I think at the end of the day, it's always going to be about equitable, um, you know, and socially just, um, you know, um, you know, cities. Um, at the end of the day, it's always going to be about this, you know, how, you know, uh, for whom are, you know, are we trying to make cities? For whom, uh, you know, are these infrastructural development projects and, you know, uh, policies and so on, um, are they being made? Uh, and um, I think first, uh, policymakers uh, have to, uh, one thing that they need to keep in mind is that they, they they just have to realize that it's going to take more than a standard master plans, uh, you know, more than, uh, you know, model plans and development plans and visions to realize uh, inclusive and sustainable urban futures. Um, And I think we need to think about how best to realize, uh, you know, development that is inclusive, that is more holistic, that is continuous. I think it's very important that we understand that development is continuous and that it can, you know, very easily be realized through, you know, different kinds of, um, you know, instant plans or uh, development projects and so on. Uh, but it's also important to consider uh, the uh, multi dimensionality of urban formations, uh, the diversity of urban trajectories, uh, and also the needs of all citizens. I think that is very important uh, if, we have, if, if, if we are going to even start thinking about realizing equitable you know, cities and social justice um, needs and concerns. Uh, but the second point for me, I think, is that it's um, uh, I think there, there is uh, a need for a better appreciation and understanding of a kind of what I, you know, refer to as provisional urban worlds, you know, where informal settlements, uh, you know, slums and uh, informal constructions and installations would all fall. Um, and we need to start thinking about these kinds of constructions as a kind that are beneficial to urban planning, actually, uh, as constructions that actually offer different kinds of alternatives uh, to uh, what is there at the moment, which really obviously isn't working as it should. Uh, but we also need to start thinking about informal and transient housing and so on as, um, uh, as well as you know, high density settlements uh, as viable alternatives uh, amidst the usually, you know, uh, usually exclusionary nature of neoliberal and market-oriented interventions. Um, so there is definitely a need to instigate a kind of practice that speaks uh, to different ways of being in the world. 
Uh, and I think one, you know, one thing that has been, you know, echoed about African cities, uh, you know, many times is how uh, these cities tend to be highly uh, fragmented. Uh, they tend to be, uh, you know, very diverse and, you know, splintered. Um, and so it's very, it, it's going to be uh, really important that we at least try to think of ways uh, to think of uh, modes of urban practice that speak to different ways of being in the world. And Astrid, how do you see it? What are your big takeaways? I mean, I think my, my big takeaways are probably similar to Prince, but let me just say, you know, from an economist perspective, the opportunity is clear, right? No country has ever reached middle income status without going through a well-managed urbanization process. And, you know, given that Africa is now the fastest continent urbanizing in the world, you know, that provides an unprecedented opportunity in terms of, you know, achieving um, development uh, uh, and and uh, for all. But I think from a, you know, what I would what I would say to policymakers, obviously caveated, it's always easier to dish out the advice and, and not have to implement it oneself. But I think um, it, it echoes what, what Prince has just said, right, which is, you know, Africa's urban trajectory is unique, both at, in terms of its speed, its scale, but also no other, you know, and Africa is a diverse continent of 54 countries, so we can't even talk about you know, sort of one urbanization trajectory. Um, you know, our institutional structures, our historical legacies, uh, you know, patients mentioned the structural adjustment programs that we've gone through that have a very big um, legacy on urban today. That's very unique. So what I would say to policymakers is stop trying to emulate models from elsewhere. Stop trying to import models from elsewhere, be it in a smart city, so you're trying to import a whole city, be it in your planning regulations or your plan, your 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 um, development plan for your city, and rather look at what your city is, and try and create the models that work. Because as Prince said, cities are only as good or only as successful if they meet the needs of the people who live there, and that's what the focus should be, in my my own opinion. Yeah, so well said, Patience. How do you see it? Yeah, echoing Prince and Astrid, um, where youthful continent is a very, very youthful population, I, I think kind of a central focus should be on the welfare of uh, urban uh, residents and, um, and thinking of them, you know, this kind of creative generative force to say, well, you know, how 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 are people how are planners policymakers and all actors going to support this creative generative energy that you do find in african cities and i think kind of one of the central parts of that is thinking about kind of really very much about welfare and well-being you know are people being given the the, the chance to to thrive um, or is that kind of energy going to be kind of cut short because then people have then low life expectancies because they don't, they, they, there really isn't the kind of social infrastructure such as healthcare and the like to support that? And related to that, of course, is kind of education. So what what are we going to do? So I would kind of center to center the the focus for the future and how does one support that creative energy? to allow it to thrive. Patience, Prince, Astrid, and Jeffrey, thank you all so much. These are such important takeaways, 
um, deep expertise and a way of connecting the conversation across what can be sometimes seen in a, you know, planning model as very distinct, um, separate topics, um, bringing them all together across infrastructure, politics, social demographics, um, developmental trajectories. Um, it's all so, so appreciated. And thank you for being with us today on this podcast. Thank you for the invitation and for the very, very fascinating discussion. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to more of this. Kind of, yeah, yeah me that's too. Great. Thank you. <laughs>